It is certainly good to see you in the house of the Lord today, and I want to uh, say a special word about uh, your cards and pastor appreciation. I think that's the best uh, pastor appreciation day I've ever had, and I thank you. I read all the cards. I read all the notes. I put a rubber band around them, and I prayed over them. I had uh, notes from Christian Heritage and from you all, and I do appreciate it, and my wife appreciates it. Please take a moment to go over your list of your mission outreach. I think it is so important, even though you are without a, a full-time pastor, uh, Rocky Mount continues to be a church that is reaching out, and so I commend you for that. And I want you to <clears throat> put out on your prayer list what's going on in the Middle East. Uh, we are living in strategically dangerous times. Um, I'm not going to make any geopolitical statements, but I would encourage you to pray uh, because uh, there are a lot of things that can go wrong. If Iran gets involved, we're in a mess. And I hope you will pray. I, I, sometimes when I pray and don't know how to pray, uh, then I claim a verse in Romans chapter 8 where the Holy Spirit helps us to pray because it says we do not know how to pray as we ought. And so the Holy Spirit helps us. And so we need to pray for the help of the Holy Spirit. You may not be aware that the Palestinians have among them Christians who are believers in Jesus Christ. And so if Israel invades Gaza, a lot of people are going to be killed. Many of those people do not support Hamas. And so we need to pray for wisdom. We need to pray for God's intervention. Uh, Israel... Some, one of their leaders was asked, why are y'all so resolved to, to invade Gaza and to do away with Hamas? And they said, because we have no place else to go. Israel is where God promised them, and they became a state in 1948. It all started in Genesis, or excuse me, Exodus chapter 1, where the Bible says... Uh, there rose a Pharaoh who did not know Joseph. Now, those of you who know something about the Bible, remember that uh, Joseph was sold into slavery in uh, Egypt, and then he arose through the ranks and became very powerful. Jacob took the rest of the boys, 11 of them, and they settled in Egypt. And then a Pharaoh came to power that had forgotten Joseph and for 350 years, Israel were slaves in Egypt. And then in Exodus chapter 3, you remember God spoke to Moses at a burning bush. And in Exodus chapter 13, they crossed the Red Sea. And they wandered around in the wilderness for 40 years. And Golda Meir, who was one of the prime ministers of Israel said many years ago, Moses wandered around and settled us in the only place that didn't have any oil. And so they're there and they have no place else to go. But they have been persecuted almost since they became uh, into existence. 
the Assyrians were persecuting them. You remember the Babylonian captivity under Nebuchadnezzar, the Assyrian captivity under Sennacherib. All of that is in the Bible. And so I believe we're dealing with interesting times, and I hope that you will be praying daily for what's going on. Many people have already died. The barbarity of killing babies and all of that that happened. And so we need to pray for God's intervention. So I want to lead us in prayer. Father, there comes times in our lives when we do not know how to pray. But Lord, we pray as you taught us to pray in the Sermon on the Mount that your will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. And Lord, we do not understand all the plan and purposes that you have, but we believe amidst all the carnage and all the death and all the terrible news that you're still in control. Even when it does not appear that you are in control, we believe, God, that you are the sovereign Lord of the universe. And so we pray for our own nation. We pray, Lord, for leadership that will do the right thing. We pray for the people in Israel. We pray for the people in the Gaza Strip. Lord, we pray that if it could be your will that the Hezbollah in the north would not get involved. And we pray, God, that somehow that all this would work out for your glory. And I make this prayer in the name of Jesus. Amen. Turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 7. We are going to read the last part of what is called the Sermon on the Mount. Someone said the Sermon on the Mount was the greatest sermon that was ever preached by the greatest preacher that has ever preached, and I think that is true. These are the words of Jesus, and Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount is telling us people who are members of the kingdom of God, people who have faith in him, he is teaching us how to live as members of God's kingdom. 31 times in the book of Matthew, the term, the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God is used. And so we want to begin at the very end of the Sermon on the Mount and listen to what, in other words, Jesus is summing up really something about the Sermon on the Mount. And therefore, he says, Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine, referring now to the Sermon on the Mount, which is, of course, the 5th, 6th, and 7th chapter of Matthew. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, yet it did not fall because its foundation was on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, 
and it fell with a great crash. I doubt if I were to ask you if you uh, had ever heard of an apartment called the Millennial Towers, probably not many of us have heard of it. Actually, it was a very expensive building that was built in San Francisco around the beginning of the 21st century, and it was called the Millennial Towers. It was a very exclusive place to live. Joe Montana had an apartment there. The cheapest apartment in the Millennial Towers cost $1.6 million. Now, if you had deep pockets, you could pay over $10 million for one apartment. In a few years, they realized that something was wrong with the building. You could put a marble on one end of the room and it would roll to the other side of the room. And so they hired these expert engineers and they found that it had sunk this Millennial Towers. Now, this is a true story. The Millennial Towers had sunk 18 inches and was leaning to one side 14 inches. Of course, you know what that did to the property values. They paid about $350 million to build it about 25 years ago, and they estimated it would cost almost that much to repair the damage that had been done. And they discovered the problem was they built that executive apartment building on sand. Now, I believe that that's a cautionary tale that leads us to what our Lord is saying in this parable or this story that he tells. And so today I want us to talk about a strong foundation. And so in order to do that, I want to give some context to the parable. All of the parables of Jesus have a context. They have a a meaning Now, I think you are aware that each gospel writer gave us an account of the life and times of Jesus, but they approach it from a different perspective, just a little different, each one of them. Mark refers to Jesus as the suffering servant. When you get to Luke, he is the son of man. When you get to John, John gives us the picture that Jesus is the Son of God. Now Matthew, where we are today, presents Jesus as a king. In fact, um, it was Warren Wearsby, and some of you who are teachers probably have read some of his books. He's got a series of books on, on the Bible, but mainly in the New Testament, and they all begin with the word be. And when he gets to Matthew, he wrote two books, and the one title is Meet Your King. And in fact, G. Campbell Morgan, who was the the great pastor of Westminster Chapel in London, in fact, my wife and I and our daughter was able to attend service there one Sunday many years ago. Of course, G. Campbell Morgan was pastor there during World War II. And he referred to the Sermon on the Mount as the manifesto of the king. In fact, he saw the theme of Matthew was to present Jesus as the king. Now keep in mind, the Jewish people wanted a king, but they wanted a kind of king that would lift the heavy boot of Roman domination. 
They wanted a king that had political power. They wanted a king that had authority to change the law. They wanted a king that they could physically look up to. And so when Jesus came, he did not live like a king. He did not look like a king. He did not dress like a king. And that is the reason that Jesus was rejected by and large by the Jewish community. And Orthodox Jews today are still looking for the Messiah. There's a young man that sometimes I watch on TV. He's an Orthodox Jewish young man. He has a lot of great values, but he's still looking. His name is Ben Shapiro. He's still looking for the Messiah. In Matthew, we have Jesus presented as the king. But the problem was that when Jesus came, he says foxes have holes, birds have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. And so when Jesus came, not talking like a king, not looking like a king, not acting like a king, they feel he was rejected by the nation of Israel. Because, you see, he was coming to be the king of the heavenly kingdom. He was the king of God's kingdom. He was become the head of the church. He asked Jesus on one occasion, excuse me, Jesus asked Peter on one occasion, whom do people say that I am? And Peter said, you are the Christ, you are the son of the living God. And Jesus said, on your confession, now our Catholic friends say that the church was started and that Peter was the first pope. Jesus is not saying, Peter, I will build my church on you, but he is saying, Peter, I'm going to build my church on the fact that you know that I am the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And that's the reason that John in John 1 said, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory. And so Jesus is indeed the King. I have often thought maybe... It sounds a little strange to you that in a way that I do not understand, when Jesus was an embryo in the womb of his blessed mother Mary, he was king. When he came through the birth canal of Mary, he was king. When he was laid in a manger, a crib, he was king. And even as a young man, in the sight of God, he was king. Luke 2.52 said, Jesus increased in wisdom and statue in favor with God and man. And so Matthew presents Jesus as a king. And you remember the wise men came. I'm not sure at all that they came to Bethlehem. But at some point after Jesus was born... We have the Magi coming, and they are called the wise men. Have you ever wondered why they were called the wise men? 
I'm not sure I'm right about this, but I think that maybe the reason that they're called the wise men is because the question they ask, where is he that is born king of the Jews? These men coming from the east knew by revelation that Jesus was the king of the Jews, although the Jews rejected him because he was not a political force, he was a spiritual force. He was the king of the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven. And so Jesus now brings to conclusion his sermon on the mount, but yet he was rejected because he was not the kind of king that the Jews was looking for. Maybe today, in fact, I know today, there are many people who are members of God's kingdom. We who are, have faith in Jesus Christ, we are members of the heavenly kingdom. There are things that happen politically that we don't understand. There are things that are happening in the Middle East. There are things that are happening in Eastern Europe. It seems Jesus said in Matthew you will have wars and you will have rumors of wars. It almost seems as if, folks, that we're living in the last days. I've had more people to say to me recently, do you think we're living in the last days? I had someone recently say, do you believe that maybe Jesus could come in our lifetime? And when you're talking to about me, it's not going to be long because I'm in my 80s. I'm saying to you, you and I are living in strategically important times. I do not know when Jesus will come, but I believe with all my heart, one day Jesus is coming again. The King is coming. The King is coming. I just heard the trumpet sounding, and now his face I see. The king is coming. The king is coming. And praise God, he's coming for me. We who are believers in the word of God, believe in the economy of God, in the plan of God, that there will be a time when the king of the kingdom of God will come. And we who are alive and remain will be called up to meet him in the air. And Thessalonians says, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. I believe that. You, we're living in a time when people do not believe it. Just because people do not believe it doesn't mean that it's not true. There are a lot of times people refuse to believe something. I, I could not believe some of the people at Harvard and Columbia were saying that what we were being reported happened in Israel did not happen. How stupid can you be? The fact is, you see, people are brainwashed. And those people who are supposed to be smart enough to get into Harvard are not smart enough to know the fact that those people were killed. There are people who live today who do not believe in the Holocaust. They do not believe that they were almost six to eight million Jews exterminated. Israel has always been 
pursued by people who want their destruction. But you and I are living in strategically important time. So that is the context. Now let's go to the content of the parable. I believe with all my heart that these two men, Jesus said there were two men. And what did these two men? John MacArthur said it is very possible that these two men perhaps went to the same synagogue in the parable or the story. The reason I use that interchangeably, not everybody believes it's a parable. Some believe it's an actual story that Jesus told of two men and, and John MacArthur, that, that great expository preacher that lives on the West Coast, he says it's conceivable that these two men had heard the message of Jesus, which is the message of the Sermon on the Mount. They had heard what Jesus said. And you remember it begins, he said, Therefore, everyone who hears these words and puts them into practice is like the wise man. And so he's talking about a wise man and a foolish man. Men who probably had heard the same sermon. Maybe they lived in the same community, went to the same synagogue, and they decided to build two houses. And the difference was where they built the house. They built a $350 million apartment building on sand. And because of that, Property values fail. Here is the story of the parable of a man or two men. They made a decision to build a house. Now, folks, all of us make a decision about what we're going to build our lives on. Whether you are a believer in Jesus Christ or whether you're an atheist, we all build our lives on some belief process. We can believe, as at one point, C.S. Lewis, I'm a, a fan of C.S. Lewis. He, he was a Christian who was an atheist. He taught at Oxford, and he came to faith in Jesus Christ. I am reading another book that was written by his stepson, and his stepson says there was a time that he did not even believe in God. But he came to faith in Jesus Christ and became a great apologist for the Christian faith. If you have to read one book by C.S. Lewis, I recommend The Problem of Pain. And all of us know what pain is. Some of you have lost precious loved ones. All of us face storms. All of us, the very definition of life is that life is not easy. We face difficulty, we face storms. And this story or this parable is about two men and they built two houses and what they had in common is both of them faced floods, both of them faced rain, both of them faced wind and, 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 and the house represents the lives that we live. And folks, the life that we live is built on some faith. There are people that I have read, one or two people in my lifetime who I have met that simply do not believe in God. Now that is a belief system. They have decided to X God out of the equation. And folks, our nation is headed into that secular mindset. Oh, there was a time 
when we recognize the Judeo-Christian ethic as foundational to this great nation. And I believe that God has blessed America. And I would rather live here than any place else. But we're living in strategically important and pregnant times. And we who are the people of God need to be praying people that somehow that there may be, by the mercy of God, a spiritual revival in America. We who are the people of God need to be praying people. And I say to you that we as a nation have shifted from that foundation of the Judeo-Christian teaching to a teaching that seems to have no time, no place, no feeling for the things of God. And so he says, there's a story of two men who built two houses and what they had in common, they both faced storms. And so I'm not going to say anything that you don't already know, but I say all of us will go through storms in our lives. This is a parable of two men who face storms. It is a story of two men who face the difficulties of life. And we who are God's people, we who have faith in Jesus Christ, we're not exempt from storms. I learned a long time ago that there's no difference just because we are followers of Jesus Christ doesn't mean that we don't hurt doesn't mean that we don't have storms. It doesn't mean that sometimes our hearts are broken and our dreams are dashed upon the anvil of adversity. Listen to what Paul said. Listen carefully now. We are hard-pressed on every side, Paul said, but we are not crushed. We're perplexed, but we're not in despair. We're persecuted, but not abandoned. We're struck down, but we're not destroyed. He wrote that in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ. Paul, whose heart was to be a man after all, all God's own heart. And he, at the life that he lived, he faced difficulty. You remember, he, he said, I was shipwrecked. I've been beaten. And he said... My life was in danger, and here he kind of sums it up. We are pressed on every side. The word pressed means to be kind of crushed. And I, I remember my, my grandma on my uh, father's side, she made homemade butter. My grandpa had a big farm in Georgia and had a country store, kind of like the Waltons. And, and, and my grandma, she, she made butter, and to make it look good, she put it in a mold and had a little flour on top. I don't know why I remember that, but it, she had to press it down. That's the word, means crushed. And here we have to face times when we feel crushed. He says, we're perplexed, but we're not in despair. We're persecuted, but we haven't been abandoned. Even in persecution, God does not abandon us. But listen to what Peter said. Dear friends, he's talking about Second and third generation Christians. When Peter wrote first and second Peter, he was writing to people who had been dispersed, the children of God. And he said, dear friends, do not be surprised 
at the painful trial that you are suffering as though something strange were happening to you. Our tendency when we face trouble, our tendency when we face a storm is to think that nobody else understands how we feel. And it's true, a lot of people don't understand, but our Heavenly Father understands. And the problem you face, the storm you have, and maybe you haven't had any storms, just wait a while and it'll come. I heard, I think it was Dr. Jerry Falwell say one time, and I think I've said this before, but I've been here so long, y'all won't call a preacher. I've been here so long, I, I repeat myself. And I was 41 years at Franklin Heights. He just got tired of me and said, we, we've had enough. That's not true. But anyway, but Jerry Falwell said, we are either in a storm, coming out of a storm, or getting ready to go into a storm. And so we must understand that this foolish man built his house on sand. And when the rains came... And when the waters rose, it says here, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell, and great was the crash. What is the story telling us? That when we build our lives on a rock, and of course the rock is Jesus Christ. In other words, it was on the confession of Peter. Not, the word Peter means, it's Petros, it means rock. And so our Catholic friends think that Peter was the first pope. It was a friend of C.S. Lewis, Sheldon Van Alken, who, by the way, was a teacher at Lynchburg College. He was a great intellect. In fact, we had him in our home. He gave a lecture at Franklin Heights many years ago. Of course, he's dead now. But he ultimately joined, he was a Christian, joined the Catholic Church because he believed that the first pope was Peter. But Christian, Peter's confession is, you are the Christ. You are the son of the living God. And so today, as we build our lives, we must build it on the fact that even in the storm, God is faithful to us. Even when we don't see a way out, there is a God who loves us. And even though we're in pain, there is a God who gives us strength. Let me close by talking about some comments that I have drawn from what I believe is a parable or a story. And let me say this, as a general rule, now this is a general rule, as a general rule, life hardly ever falls together as we have planned. I look back over my life and I see the hand of God. I... Uh, I think I mentioned in my prayer last Sunday, I, I grew up in a home that nobody attended church. And, and let me just say this. It was a godly-minded Baptist deacon who helped me come to faith in Jesus Christ. His name was J.D. Jones. I remember his two children. And I remember as I grew in my faith and got married and had a church, I made a trip and went to see Mr. and Ms. Jones and to thank them 
for their input into my life. You who are deacons, you who are Sunday school teachers, you who carry the name Jesus Christ, people look at us. And it was a Baptist deacon who was used of God to bring me to Jesus Christ. I thank God later in my life, my mom came to know Christ as her Savior and she became a godly woman and she loved the Lord and she lived a long time. But my point is, as a rule, life will not play out as we want it to play out. But that was true of Job. Job lost everything. But the Bible says Job was blameless. He feared God and he turned away from evil. One of their very best religious, righteous Jews was Job. He was blameless before God. He feared God. Now that was a way of saying he had faith in God. And he turned away from evil. And he lost everything except a nagging wife. She wasn't worth shooting. But that's a sermon for another time. But when our trouble and our heartaches come, we need to remember what our foundation is. We need to recognize, I believe, and this is something I believe that the Lord has taught me. Now, it maybe not applies to you, but it's something that I have built my life on. That because I have tried to build my life, not on being a preacher, but being a follower of Jesus Christ, that I need to prepare for the storms that are coming. You see, folks, we need as Christians to expect storms. Secondly, we need to prepare for storms. Now, how do we prepare for storms? The thing that has helped me is to be a person who really is thankful for God's faithfulness and mercy in my life. Have I had some storms? Of course. Have you had storms? Of course. But I want to be a thankful person. I want to be a person of praise. Thessalonians says, give thanks in all circumstances. Now, in, in Greek, prepositions are very important. Now, here it says, give thanks in all circumstances. It does not say, in is a preposition. It does not say, give thanks for all circumstances. And there is a difference. In the circumstance of the storm that you're in, you can still say, Lord, I am grateful that you have not forsaken me. I am thankful for your mercy. I am grateful, Lord, that regardless of what happened, ultimately, I will see Jesus. And folks, that's where the water hits the wheel, where the rubber meets the road. And I am grateful that God has promised. He has not promised us a life without storms, but let me tell you what God has promised us. God has promised us peace. And I want to say something to you today. That God, who is our Savior through His Son, Jesus Christ, says that He will give us a peace. Listen to what Romans 5, 1 says. Now, there are two kinds of peace. 
I'm hurried and I'm trying to land this plane. There is peace with God and there is peace of God. Peace with God has to do with my relationship with Jesus Christ. And this is what it says in Romans 5.1. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Folks, because Christ died on the cross, I am not any longer the enemy of God. I am the friend of God. I am the child of God. I am heaven bound. Isn't that good? I think that's good. That is peace with God. God. But the peace of God, oh, I love this. John 14, 27. This is what Jesus said. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. I do not give to you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled, neither let it be afraid. Jesus has promised us a peace. It's a miraculous thing. Listen to what Colossians says. Let the peace of Christ rule in your heart. Let the peace of Christ rule in your heart. And then I guess two of my favorite verses in Philippians, and I'm closing. Philippians says, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything give thanks. And then he says, By prayer and supplication, which means petition, with thankfulness in your heart, let your requests be made known unto God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your mind and heart. Now, folks, I have to go to those verses a lot of times. There are storms that we face Paul comes under the control of the Holy Spirit. And nothing be anxious, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God and the peace of God, which surpasses our understanding, shall guard your heart and your mind in Christ Jesus. Folks, I cannot promise we will not have storms, but I can promise that God can give us a peace even in the storms. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, I thank you today for the good music that we've had. I thank you for this church. I pray, Lord, that you would bless us next week as we have our baptism. Lord, I thank you for the mission endeavor of this church. at least 20 mission outreach last year for this church. I just pray, God, that you would bless, have your way, and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.